Hello, hello, and welcome back to Murder, Lies and Everything in Between, a true crime podcast with me just yesterday. Um, we don't have the normal Atty today. Um, I wanted to kind of give you a different type of feel of an episode today. Um, I am going to be recording the special Halloween episode today for you. Um, and we're obviously going to be putting this live a couple of days early. So this will replace the normal Sunday episode. Um, kind of trying to get ahead of ourselves a little bit here. And this is a different one, I would say, from what we would normally kind of do. I'm actually going to be talking about an issue that we don't talk about much in the UK, I don't think. Um, We don't have many Indigenous people in the UK, but the States does have a lot of them and obviously other areas in the world. Um, Canada is actually one of the biggest that's very, very well known, I would say, um, to have a very large population of Indigenous people. So according to the Canadian government, between 1980 and 2012, 1,017 Indigenous girls and women have been killed in Canada alone. That's just alone. That's nowhere else in the States or the world. That is just Canada alone. And that rate, frighteningly, is said to be higher than this in reality. They're four times more likely to even become a victim than non-Indigenous women. So, I mean, those statistics alone are absolutely terrifying. One of the most recent well-known serial killers to come out of Port Coquitlam in British Columbia, Canada, is Robert Picton. He was also known as the Pig Farm Killer. So you may have heard of him. He is quite a well-known serial killer from BC. He alone is suspected to be responsible for the murders of up to 49 mainly Indigenous women who he selected from Vancouver's downtown east side. He targeted mainly the poverty-stricken female population that relied on sex work to unfortunately survive. He was known to rape, assault, torture, butcher, and possibly even cannibalise his victims. Oddly, though, he didn't kind of make much of an attempt to hide his victims' remains. And frankly, he was quite open about what he was actually doing to some of these people. So much so that he was eventually caught after a 2002 warrant was actually issued for illegal firearms on his property. This was all kind of under a ruse that they had very strong suspicions that he was responsible for missing women in the area. So they kind of just used this 2002 warrant to actually get access to his property where they found the remains of all these women. He was arrested and charged for multiple murders and obviously other related charges, ultimately being handed a life sentence with no possibility of parole for at least 25 years. So I've basically spent the last week trying, trying, and I say trying because this was a deep hole that I went down for this. And trying to dive into the history of the First Nations, Matisse and Inuit women was a lot it was a hell of a lot to to kind of a deep rabbit hole to go down and what i don't understand is how in the year 2023 we as a supposed civilized society still allow the unfair treatment to our fellow human beings i just don't understand how we haven't come further in 2023 It was absolutely heartbreaking to watch documentaries, the interviews and the public outcry for change in the way Indigenous people have been treated systematically since the 1800s. 
Traditionally, Indigenous women were respected for their spiritual and mental strength, and men were respected for their spiritual and physical strength. Women were given the responsibility in bearing children and were given the strength and power to carry that responsibility through. Men had always respected that spiritual and mental strength, and women respected the men's physical strength and what they brought to the table. There was always a balance between men and women as they all had their own responsibilities and a man and a woman, and they understood their responsibilities. As settlers arrived in what is now known as North America, they brought with them a foreign patriarchal European value system. European settlers imposed their own frameworks of understanding of onto the Aboriginal social systems, which had particular ramifications for Aboriginal women. The Indian Act, created by the federal government in 1876, was evidently designed with the colonial ideal of men as leaders and heads of the household, and women as dependent of their husbands. The Indian Act denied women the right to possess land and marital property. Only widows could possess land under the reserve system. However, a widow could not inherit her husband's personal property upon his death. Everything the husband owned, including the family house, legally went to his children. If your husband was to die, you would be left with nothing. It would be left to your children. I mean, the government did kindly, kind of modify the act slightly, I would say, in 1884, with an amendment that allowed men to actually will their estate to their wives. But a wife could only receive it if the Indian agent actually determined that she was of good moral character. This particular amendment remained in the Indian Act until 1951, although to this day men still hold exclusive rights to property, even if the relationship ends. So, I mean, how far have we actually come? I, I don't think we've come far enough, if I'm honest. The removal of Indigenous people from their land, their placement on reserves, and the loss of the traditional male roles of hunter-provider that cause role conflicts, frustration and anger, which often obviously finds an outlet in violence against the women. Many people were taken from their lands and segregated onto reserves in mostly rural areas where there was little to no amenities, their titles and rights just stripped away from them. In 1883, the Canadian government started funding residential schools, which was another beast in itself. These were so-called Christian schools, where Indigenous children were actually torn from their families, placed into often permanent placements to teach them how to act more European, to basically deprive them of their ancestral languages and expose them to physical and sexual and mental abuse in these facilities. The schools were purposefully placed in rural areas to ensure that the families had no way of commuting between school and home, making boarding almost inevitable for most families. Reserves were searched for children, families hid their kids to try and stop them from being taken by the government and placed in these residential schools for them. A change in the Indian Act in 1894 made day schools, industrial schools or residential schools compulsory for any First Nation children. And by the 1930s, 30% of Indigenous children were attending residential schools. So just to put this into comparison, 30% of Indigenous children were in these schools where they were systematically abused 
tortured mentally, I would say. And everything, every ancestral being that they had torn away from them to try and become more European and try and kind of force them to be something that they're not. Disconnected from their families and culture and forced to speak English or French, students often graduated being unable to even fit into their communities anymore, but remaining subject to racist attitudes in mainstream Canadian society. The last school closed in 1996, and yes, 1996, this is how long this went on for, with over 150,000 students having been placed into this, and I will say test, because this ultimately, what it was, this was a test to see if they could destroy an entire community of, of, of Aboriginal people to try and disrupt their ancestral teachings, their languages, everything that made them them, this was to disrupt all of this. The system ultimately proved successful in disrupting the transmission of Indigenous practices and beliefs across generations. The legacy of the system has been linked to an increased prevalence of post-traumatic stress, alcoholism, substance abuse, suicide. Indigenous women are nearly three times as likely to report being a victim of spousal abuse and violence than non-Indigenous women. And again, that that is terrifying to think that that amount of people, just because they are an Indigenous people, person, they are three times likelier to be a victim of spousal abuse and domestic violence. That is a scary statistic. Many of the issues Indigenous people are still facing to this day stem from colonisation, and many still suffer the emotional and physical wounds inflicted on them at residential schools. All this being said has made Indigenous people a targeted group. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. So to give you a little, that's to give you a little bit of a backstory. So we can have some kind of understanding of just how much of a problem and an issue this really, really is in the world. And for all Indigenous people, I think, um, not just Canadians, um, it's terrifying. And researching this was heartbreaking. And I, I don't know any other way to put it apart from absolutely heartbreaking to see an entire culture of people systematically treated in such a poor way and still now being treated in such a poor way because some things have kind of moved forward but I cannot say they have they have even touched on the problem that is going on in Canada with this and whether the RCMP the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, are doing enough about it. I'll let you have your opinion about it, but I would say Indigenous people have made their opinions about it very, very well known. One of these issues is along Highway 16, and this is actually between Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia, Canada. It's otherwise known as the Highway of Tears for real reasons real terrifying reasons this is basically a 447 mile stretch of road that since 1970 to the current date has documented over 482 women missing or murdered and the large proportion of that list being indigenous women 
In October 1969, Gloria Levine Amude was 26 year old and she was the mother of four-year-old Vanessa and three-year-old Dan. Her family were from Bella Coola Reserve in the Nuklux Nation and was the second oldest of eight children. On October the 23rd, 1969, Gloria, her brother Dave, and her parents David and Daisy were going on a trip to Williams Lake in BC, British Columbia, where the family actually checked into the ranch hotel and they checked into a room for the night. The following day, Gloria and Dave visited a local bar before ending back up at the ranch hotel. Gloria was last seen at 10pm, but no one remembered who she was with and no one saw her getting into any kind of car. The following day, Gloria's body was found on a cattle trail just outside of the city. She had been raped and beaten to death. Her children were taken on by their grandparents, but as you can probably imagine, Gloria's murder... None of them were the same afterwards. David became an alcoholic and died just three years later in 1972. Gloria's son, Dan, when he got older, he became addicted to drugs and alcohol and passed away just a few years ago. Sadly, that's not the only murder the family actually suffered. Ron, one of Gloria's older brothers, was murdered, but that case was actually solved and the perpetrator he actually only received a measly 18 months in prison for that murder. Don't know how you justify 18 months for murder, but, you know, justice was apparently served. In 2007, E. Panna became aware of Gloria's murder, and in case you don't know what E. Panna is, it's basically like a task force set up by the RCMP, Royal, Mount- Royal Canadian Mounted Police, in 2005 to try and tackle with the purpose of solving cold cases and missing and murdered persons along a section of Highway 16, all female between Prince Rupert, British Columbia and Prince George, British Columbia. They added Gloria's case file to their box of unsolved murders. Hers was actually the oldest at this point to be investigated at that time. So it shows you just how far back this reaches. By 2006, they actually had to broaden the area to include victims along Highway 5, 24 and 97. They are no longer specifically dedicated to just the Highway of Tears cases because of the sheer amount of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, pretty much. On the 8th of August 1970, a group were picking berries near Highway 20 when they discovered the body of 18-year-old Micheline Pear. She was last seen getting a ride off two girls who dropped her off at the gate of Thompson's Ranch on Highway 20, which is between Fort St. John and Hudson's Hope. Due to the level of decomposition and the amount of time that had passed since her murder, they were unfortunately unable to ascertain whether she was sexually assaulted by the suspect or not, but they did determine that she had been beaten to death with a blunt weapon. No one was ever investigated for that murder, and this actually still remains cold to this day. In the same year, 17-year-old Helen Claire Frost disappeared after she left her home she shared with her older sister Sandy. She was four days shy of her 18th birthday. Helen's teenage years weren't the easiest by far. In spring 1970, she fell pregnant and was soon in a home for unwed mothers, despite her being in the relationship at the time with the baby's father. Um, he actually left right after the birth of their daughter, who was named Sandra Jeanette, and she was actually born on the 14th of May. Unfortunately, soon she became custody of the government, 
she tried to fight for her, but all of her attempts failed, sadly. It was just six months later, on the 13th of October 1970, Sandy returned home from meeting friends and Helen was home. At about 20 past eight, Helen asked Sandy if she wanted to join her for a short walk, but she declined the offer. It was too cold at the time. So Helen left without her sister, but she actually never returned home. Two days later, on the 15th of October, her sister actually reported her missing. She'd actually, the reason she hadn't reported her sooner, because when I looked into this case and I thought, well, why did it take her sister two days to report her missing if she lived with her? Um, the actual reason was because she thought she'd gone and visited friends. She thought that, you know, she was suffering. You know, she just had her child taken away from her and she thought she was going through a very emotional time at this point. So she just thought, you know, she just took herself off to her friends for a few days. But when she obviously realised this wasn't the case, that was when she reported her missing. The RCMP did take a missing persons report, but Sandy didn't feel that they actually took much notice. And as a young girl herself, she didn't kind of know how to even push push the point. There was a tip that she hitchhiked from the Husky gas station in Prince George, but that, that line of inquiry dried up quickly and nothing more could be found on that. This case is actually still open, um, but there's no new evidence at, at all at this point. So it's kind of just, there's nothing more, nothing more at the minute that they're done. She's just added to another one of the boxes of cold cases that Epana are dealing with. Jean Virginia Samper, also known as Ginny, was of Gitsan descendants and was the second youngest of six children. On the 14th of October 1971, Ginny and her cousin Alvin were hanging out near an old bridge on Highway 16, which was located right outside of her hometown of Gitsakula. As it got cold, Alvin wanted to get a jacket, so he hopped on his bike and told Ginny he'd be right back. His house was literally right near the bridge, so it wasn't far. On his way back, he said he heard a car door slam, and when he arrived back at the spot where they had parted ways, Ginny was nowhere to be seen. Her mother reported her missing the next day, and police, family and community members searched for her in the following days, but nothing was ever found. Her brother's wife remembered seeing Ginny at, the, at her mother's house that night, and she appeared upset before quickly leaving the house. Ginny was also known to be dating someone at the time, but he had gone missing just days before her own disappearance. Her family strongly believes that even though she was stressed at the time, it was not in her nature to run away from home or take her own life. So they don't think that this was the case in the slightest. She has not been seen or heard from since, and her case is still unsolved and open. Gail Ways moved to Clearwater, British Columbia when she was 19 years old with a view to work hard and pay to put herself through college. She worked two jobs, one in David Thompson's pub and another at a petrol station. On 19th of October 1973, Gail was last seen finishing her shift at the service station. She was trying to get home to her parents' house in Kamloops, which was 77 miles away from where she was. That night, she needed a lift home. Ron Hangerman, a pub patron, remembered seeing Gail and she was asking if anyone could give her a ride home. Obviously, it being 77 miles away, people weren't just kind of passing by the area and no one said that they were going that way, so no one could take her, no one offered. She must have got a ride eventually, though, because no one saw her after this alive. On the 4th of April 1974, the following year, her body was discovered in a water-filled ditch off Highway 5. She was naked and her clothes have never been recovered. 
In 2012, the RCMP thought they may have had a suspect in a man named Bobby Jack Fowler. Fowler had died in prison in 2006, but they strongly believed he was responsible for not only Gail's death, but actually the death of two other women in the area and another lady that I'm going to talk about in a minute. All women were believed to have been hitchhiking before they actually went missing. Unfortunately, police do not have enough DNA evidence to convict him at the time, and this case still remains unsolved. And as he's now passed away, that's likely not to to get solved anytime soon. The same year Gail was found, 19-year-old Pamela Darlington disappeared. She was last seen in a bar in Kamloops. Her body was found the next day in a park. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death. 1974, 14-year-old Monica Ignis disappeared. Monica was last seen on the night of the 13th of December, 1974, at around 11pm. She was seen walking by herself along Highway 16 in the direction of her house in Terrace. She was wearing a blue wool duffel coat, blue socks and a brown wallaby style shoes. Her body was found four months later, just off a densely wooded service road, roughly four miles from the area that she actually went missing. She was partially clothed and police determined she had been strangled by her own clothing. Two witnesses also reported seeing a car containing a man and what appeared to be a small girl pulled over to the side of the road. The night of her disappearance. Despite this, no arrests have ever been made connected to this case. The same year, 1974, Colleen Macmillan was 16 years old when she disappeared hitchhiking to a friend's house. Her remains were found one month later. In 2012, with advancements in DNA technology, the RCMP announced that Bobby Jack Fowler, who we spoke about a minute ago, was a suspect in her killing. 1989, 26-year-old Doreen Jack and her husband Ronald were offered jobs at a logging camp from an unknown man in the First Liters pub. Both of them could work. Ronnie was offered a job buckling logs. Doreen was offered a position as a cook's helper in the camp kitchen, so it worked out well for them to accept the job. The man told Ronnie the camp even had a daycare for the couple's two sons. The struggling family of four accepted the job and the ride the man had offered to the area. The family, including their two kids, Russell, who was nine, and Ryan, who was four, were last seen at 1.20am that night leaving with the man in his car. The man waited for Ronnie, Doreen, Russell and Ryan to pick up their belongings, and at 1.21 on the 2nd of August 1989, all four members of the Jack family were seen leaving their home at 2116 Scaratona Avenue and piling into the man's four-wheel drive dark-coloured pickup truck. They have never been seen again. The family was officially reported missing on 25th of August 1989 and their disappearance is actually the first and only of its kind in Canadian history. Since the investigation began, the RCMP have conducted hundreds and hundreds of interviews. They've obtained thousands of documents related to the case and have searched several properties in search of Ronald, Doreen, Russell and Ryan. The most recent search for the Jack family took place in actually 2019, so only four years ago, at a property south of Vanderhoof on the Sakus First Nation Reserve. Ground penetrating radar and heavy equipment were used, but no trace of the Jack family has ever been found. The suspect that picked the family up was described as Caucasian, six foot to six foot six tall, with a reddish brown hair and short, full beard and moustache. 
His hair went to the bottom of his ears and was parted at one of the side. And in 1989, he would have been about 35 to 40. So, you know, you never know. It's a long time's passed since then. So he'd been significantly older now. And he was approximately 200 to 275 pounds. He, at the time, was wearing a baseball cap, a red checkered work shirt, blue faded jeans, a waist-length blue nylon jacket and work boots with leather fringes on the toes. Over 30 years have passed now. The Jacks family's fate and the identity of the man from the First Litre pub remains unknown. There is an exhaustive list of victims. And sadly, I can't even scratch the surface. And I haven't even scratched the surface. There's so many people in regards to this that have been affected. You've got all of the victims, all of the victims' families. There's so many. There's thousands and thousands of women that have been affected by this. And the sad thing is, is that I can't name them all. And I have so many more names to reel off to you that... I can't even I can't even name them all because there's just too many of them. You know, you've got Ramona Wilson, Delphine Nicole, Alberta Williams, Roxanne Tiara, Alicia Germain, Lana Patrick Derrick, Nicola Hall, Kayla Rose McKay, Margaret Newski, Tamara Chipman, Mary Madeline George, Elia Katerina Sarik Ogar, Bonnie Marie Joseph, Emily Rose McLean, Immaculate Basil. Anita Florence Thorne, Francis Brown, Chantelle Catherine Simpson, Jessica Patrick Balzer, Cynthia Martin. And these are just a fraction of people that are missing or murdered people. And most of these cases, the people are still missing. They've, their bodies have never been recovered. They've just quite literally dropped off the face of this planet. And all of these beautiful souls have either had their lives taken or they've just disappeared in completely odd and strange circumstances. And in ways that, you know, these people, most of these people weren't going through a traumatic time. So they had no reason to just disappear. They had no, they had no means to just disappear. So these people couldn't have just up to move. That's, that's not the case of this. And I think the more you look into it, the more terrifying these statistics actually are and these people that are affected behind the statistics. In 2006, the Highway of Tears symposium took place and the people put forward recommendations to the RCMP to try and reduce or stop the amount of attacks on Indigenous women along the Highway of Tears. The symposium, I read the notes from the symposium and all the information that they had provided on there. And I do not think that what they were asking was too much. I think it's completely fair what they were asking for. And they did listen, I will say. I mean, all I think nearly all the victims' families, as many as could be there, um, got involved. They attended the symposium. And they all stood up and gave statements about their family members that had been that had either disappeared or been murdered and been found. Um, and it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking to hear this family's trauma um, being laid completely bare and them to feel like they haven't been heard and they systematically haven't been heard for 
over 40 years, 40, 50 years, these people haven't been heard for. And this symposium really was a way for them to try and just get out there how much of an issue this really is and to try and come up with some kind of recommendations to try and help. There was over 30 recommendations that they put forward to the RCMP um, and I'll name a few of them. Um, I've kind of cherry picked a few of the recommendations because as I said there's over 30 of them. Um, They actually recommended firstly that a shuttle bus transportation system be established between each town and city located along the entire length of Highway 16, which is defined as the Highway of Tears. That while the RCMP does a commendable job in patrolling the highway, these patrols can no longer drive past a hitchhiker if they fit the victim profile. The other one was that the Greyhound Bus Service free ride programme, which I didn't even know was a thing, um, we don't have the Greyhound Bus here, um, actually be expanded and target marketed to the population in the Highway 16 corridor who actually fits the victim profile. So they'll have no need for hitchhiking because they'll have a great, they can use the Greyhound bus service instead. As I said previously, um, most of these reserves where a lot of the indigenous people are living um, and do live, um, they don't have access to cars. They don't have a lot of them, you know, aren't, earning a lot of them aren't in jobs as i just said as the, at the beginning there's so much systematic abuse that they've received that it's generational and you know they can't just get a job that's not that's not how it works there's a lot of these reserves they don't have jobs available um and unfortunately they have been seen as second class citizens systematically for god hundreds of years hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um so the Greyhound bus service providing this service, it, it, they won't need to have any money and they can get to where they need to go to safely, like doctor's appointments, um, anything like that, any anywhere important that they need to go. Another recommendation they made was that a number of emergency phone booths be placed along the highway at strategic locations between the cities of Prince Rupert and Prince George, British Columbia. This would ensure, you know, if anyone was in any danger or any harm, they actually had an emergency phone booth that they could go to for help. That a number of billboards and many more posters be placed at strategic locations along Highway 16 corridor. They do currently have billboards up, but not nearly enough um, to encourage people not to hitchhike and it's not safe to hitchhike or walk the road alone. That the RCMP re-establish and maintain communication with each of the victims' families. Sadly, this hasn't happened a lot of the time and victims' families feel as though they've just been pushed to the side and ignored, sadly. So, you know, re-establishing and maintaining communication would be, I think, would be the minimum, if I'm honest with you, what should be expected of the RCMP in regards to victims' families that the RCMP continue its official investigation or inquiry into the Aboriginal community's assertions on the actual number of missing women. So most of these these things that I have stated to you about figures and all these kind of things, the numbers are actually significantly higher than this. This is just what the RCMP, the figures the RCMP are given out. Um, the numbers are significantly more, sadly, than this, but this is just the figures the RCMP are given us. Most of these recommendations have not been implemented 
and the First Nation peoples are still fighting to be heard on many of these points. This episode took me down such a deep rabbit hole that if you want me to cover another one of these types of episodes, let me know in an email or via our social media. Um, because I have, I, I can't even explain how much information I have regarding these cases and many, many more of them. As I reeled off those names previously, all those people, there's so much history on them as well. And I mean, if I was, I can't put out a podcast episode that long. It would be two, three hours if I was to cover as all these cases that I could find and all these people that would become victims. Um, I would also like to give each victim the time that they deserve to have their crimes heard and not just skim over them. So if you do want another one of these episodes, let me know. Um, and I can cover all those ladies that I've I've given the names that I've given you. I can cover all of those as well. Um, because they are people, you know, <laughs> it's terrifying that this is still happening to this day and not a lot is being done about it. Um as far as the indigenous people are concerned. And I don't think enough is done about it personally, to be honest with you, that many people should not become victims with the lowest amount of conviction conviction rates with regards to these crimes. I think it's absolutely disgusting. And I think personally, the RCMP have got a lot to answer to. That being said, thank you for listening to this episode for this spooky season please rate and review our podcast it really does help us get out there and it and you can find us on our socials we're now on tiktok um i have just posted a post to instagram um and we will have loads of like kind of short tiktoks um added with just like short clips of episodes um and maybe even cases that you've never heard of before so you can find us on there i'm always posting on our instagram so it's definitely worthwhile as i said previously if there's any updates on on us or anything like that i always post it to our instagram i am very very active on there so we hope that you have a great halloween if you celebrate that sort of thing and i will talk to you guys soon have a great halloween thanks guys bye